Sirok. Walk on the Crown of Bihar Short Stories of Poetry for January 26, 2024. I'm Terrence O'Donnell, your Irish Shanake. Come in, sit down. Be welcome. Sit down for a wee bit while I listen to more stories and poems again this week. So I've got four short stories and three poems for you. We have the third and last part of The Heart and Harvest, some beautiful poetry, one of which is read to us by the author in Robert J. Longfrey's ninth chapter from Sanctuary. I'm happy to hear from all the authors regarding my efforts here to bring these stories and poems to life from around the world. So far, they like what we're doing, and it seems the show is gaining popularity around the world, primarily in the U.S. So let's keep it up. I recently added Google Translator to my website at www.crownabihad.com so more non-English speaking and reading peoples will have more access to these podcasts. So time will tell to see if that's going to work out. So my first story this week is from Mariana Bolsarova. She's from Bulgaria and it's entitled His Hands Were Creating Magic, published in Read or Die. Now this story, as I commented to her, is kind of a, if anybody's familiar with Pymalion, the ancient story, uh, this is similar, but it's got a twist to it. So let me read it to you. His dreams had a form, his reveries and his thoughts too. He was a creator. He was a man in love. His pieces talked. They talked tales. They were near to perfection because love should be perfection. His hands created a miracle. They caressed the potter's clay and sculpture beauty. His fingers looked soft and exquisite, no matter if they were covered in clay, because they were the tools of creation. He whispered, he whispered words of love. They were like a spell. They were like a foretelling, because love might be molded in a piece of sculpture. Love was an arson for his soul. He used his inner flame to create her image. The potter's clay became alive. First, he made her forehead and the lines of her lovely face. Soft cheeks and cheekbones, refined nose and chin. He molded the loving lines of her body, her gentle shoulders and breasts, her hands, her hips and legs. Then he created her hair, falling down her shoulders like a waterfall. Lovely waves covered her back. It was a sculpture of a woman. It was a sculpture of his love, too. He poured the dirty water containing dissolved clay into the deep sink in his workshop. He cleaned his hands and looked at the crystal water drops falling down the floor. They looked like pearls. Then they disappeared on the ground. The water drops were the soul of his dreams. His dreams were dying pearls. They were alive until he was dreaming. In the daylight, they became something imaginary. Was love simply in his imagination? For him, love was real. He lived lovingly. He lived dreaming of her. He lived creating her sculptures. The most difficult was to mold her face. It was difficult not because he did not remember her features. He knew them in his thoughts. He kept them in his heart. He felt them in his blood. The most difficult was he never thought the creation was perfect enough. In his mind, she was always more beautiful than any sculptures. Finally, he molded her eyes and her lips. He softened the lines at every edge. The sculpture was ready. He felt relief. Then he felt grief. A single tear left his dark blue eyes. The pain was purifying. He had nothing more than her sculpture because she wasn't his lover. She was a woman of another man. He could just caress the potter's clay and dream of her. How could he live in the dreams? 
Next time it'll be easier to mold a vase. Next is this poem that I promised you. It's it's a it's a love poem, if you will, uh, more of heart heartache uh, in love. It's called Once Upon a Time I Loved You by Danielle Mustafa. And so now I'm going to let you listen to her rendition. Once Upon a Time Once upon a time I loved you without a second thought. You had me enraptured. By you I'd been caught. A love to last through space and time, lacking worldly worry or fear. A love to build a life upon. Emotional free and clear. Once upon a time, I loved you without reservation, no lies. I made you part of my life, my world. I saw happiness through your eyes. To you, I'd have given the world, dressed in a little bow, do anything to calm your fear, fix each woe to help you grow. Once upon a time, I loved you, and I was sure you felt the same, but then you threw my love away. I felt such pain, such shame. Everything I did was for us, and I thought this time was good, but then you threw my love away and caused despair I'm shocked to have withstood. Once upon a time, I loved you, and I thought you loved me too. The sorrow you caused proved that untrue, as your love you clearly withdrew. This agony you caused, truly undo. This heartache, I will learn to subdue. My next poem is called Winter's Womb by Anna West. It's entitled, the subtitle is a, a poem published in Imogene's Notebook. A soft snow is falling this long, dark night. White fields shine with a full moon's light, and ice crystals tremble on the long fingers of the sentinel oak that stands guardian to this gentle place. Life gently unfolds within the darkness of winter's womb, for the nurturing stillness of winter is the dark mother's grace. It is a sacred pause, a time to rest, to gather strength, to die, and be reborn. It is time of all possibilities, yet listen. As this moment turns, be still. Can you hear the earth's gentle hum? Her heart's breath? Do you feel the quickening in the great oak's trunk? Or the shifting of the bear who sleeps in the warm refuge of his roots? As we honor this dark night, we give thanks and welcome the light as it returns to our world. In this turning of our earth, may all who suffer know peace and liberation, and all those in conflict recognize each other's pain. A blessed solstice to all. And I have another poem that follows right along with this one. Uh, this is called With the Waning of the Moon by Tom Kane. And uh, again, in Imogene's notebook. How chilling is the air where frost and moonlight weave a silver glaze that glimmers brittle white. Long shadows sketch silhouettes with blackened inks as stars confetti on ebony night. Though eyes perceive what the heart desires, there is but a frozen rose, and love will not dim, nor will a wind sigh. There is stillness in this chilly night, as memories flitter in the hallways of my mind. Words are underpinned by scents and gentle whispers that rustle sullen leaves, 
while I unpick the textures of the memories they weave, a fading rose endures when all else fails. And now I have the third and last chapter of The Heart and Harvest by Jonathan Sawyer, published in the Kraken Lore. Part 3. Ladiel had just invited him to the Harvest Festival. Mallory was stricken with an awkward silence, and for a moment Ladiel wondered if her decision to invite him had been a bad one. His face contorted. Maybe he wasn't sure what his answer should be, what he wanted it to be. Did she not understand? Of course he knew she understood. She had been ever attentive when he told his stories, and she always conversed with purpose. He also knew that she'd have wanted to ask him last week, too, but took the time to think upon her request and his potential answers. Well, she prompted him, sounding more concerned than impatient. The last of his kind, he thought, and he was honestly considering venturing into a village populated by the descendants of his mortal enemies. What folly was this? The honor is mine to accept your invitation, he said, through a smile that, though forced, was not insincere. He loved her and treated her with all the respect he would to a child of his own. Despite any apprehension, he wanted nothing more than to see her wishes as best he could. Contrary emotions he attributed to the centuries of hatred and fear between their two peoples. Their friendship, he argued with himself, transcended such simple boundaries. That's good news, she said happily, knowing full well he had reservations about his decision, because mother's preparing a family feast just before the evening celebrations. She noticed a momentary change in his expression. He had been baited, and they both realized it. You won't be disappointed either. Ralaburn casserole, meatloaf, and rhubarb pie for dessert. He nodded happily, then his expression turned sharply to disappointment. Even in my human form, I will still be a stranger to your family, his voice rapped sadly. Your family has worked hard to produce these foods, and I don't wish to play a beggar off the street. It'd be no such burden, she stammered in defense. You will not be some random person coming in off the street. You will be my guest, my honored guest. I would not have it any other way. And how exactly do you plan to manage that, he asked, sounding much less upset but still hesitant. Lady kept her expression indistinct. She hadn't solved that small aspect of her dilemma, but she was still confident she would have an answer by supper. Come back to the town with me this afternoon and wait near the market. I'll be back to get you after my chores are done. She sensed a lingering hesitance from him and immediately added, This is a simple plan, I promise. He nodded, hoping she was right. Even as they spoke, her brain was smoothing out the details. I wish you could have told me sooner about your ability to change into human form, she said, finishing the last of her milk. We could have done this months ago. Now you had best dress yourself. I think that lovely decorated shirt of yours will do nicely. She took some time after he transformed once again into his human shape to fix him into a proper gentleman. The bejeweled vestment looked noble in origin, so she attempted to find a pair of trousers to match, as well as give his hair the typical style. He spoke with a hint of a peculiar accent, so a question she decided to introduce him as a northerner from the coastline. He seemed to enjoy that part of the ruse. When she was finished with him, he truly looked the part, and the absence of a crown atop his head was the only thing that kept her from thinking it was a completely different Malaroon under these clothes. Well and done, she said at long last, and pulled a biscuit from her rucksack and split it between them, taking a step back to admire her handiwork. You are surely the finest looking noble I've ever met. 
Indeed, I have you to thank, he said, while finishing the last bite of his snack. He offered her his arm. Shall we go? Lady laughed graciously. Oh, yes, we shall. They had walked back into town along the road together, though Mallory had thought it wisest to split up upon entering them through the main gate. They said their goodbyes and parted ways, both looking forward to the night ahead of them. When Lady returned home, she had piles of chores awaiting her, but she completed her long list of menial tasks without a single complaint. Her parents kept hidden, her father too busy with the final crop preparations and her mother too busy with the startling array of pots and pans steaming away on the stove. Once again, Lady O didn't mind and passed the afternoon without protest, washing dishes, cleaning the outhouse, and shoeing the family's plow horse. Her final chore, as the sun began its decline towards the horizon, was to bring a few stacks of hay to the church using a handcart. There, the choir would arrange themselves on the stacks. All the while, on the few scarce instances that she saw her parents advancing, she made mention of a good friend of hers coming to join them for supper. They seemed ecstatic. She rarely spoke of anything outside of the immediate family topics of food and farming, for that matter, and, and her mother was quick to note that there would be more than enough food to share with others. That was an encouraging thought, Lady mused. She had delivered the cartful of haystacks to the workers at the church near the center of town, who were all busy with the last-minute setup of the church and the makeshift stage outside in the town square. While passing by the market, she spotted Mallory deep in discussion with a Civil War vendor as he perused all the sparkling products the man had to offer. Lady, once she was sure the workers didn't need her assistance setting up, headed back to the market at top speed. The sun had disappeared behind the town's two-story inn. Supper was close. She could almost taste it in her mouth as she stepped into the crowd of bazaar. Malarot, she cried as she happened upon him at a baker's stand, scrutinizing a selection of wooden rolling pins. He turned around to greet her, revealing a wide smile across his face that nearly made her burst out laughing. What a surprise to find you here. He was so mesmerized by the goings-on in the market, he almost didn't realize what Lelio was trying to do. Lady Lamera, I haven't seen you in ages. The stage was now set for the charade, and they had witnesses to boot. The two shared a friendly embrace, though since he was still adjusting to the dimensions of his new appearance, Malarote nearly crushed Lady O with his immense strength. Have you come for the harvest, she asked, as she was released from his embrace. She <gasps> gasped for air briefly before slowly nudging him in the general direction of her house. He nodded, enjoying his role in this scripted encounter. I was visiting the capital and I smelled your mother's fine cooking from up there. The two friends shared a forced laugh as they walked up the cobblestone road. In truth, Malarut really could smell her cooking, and that of a dozen other families, and he could hardly wait to eat anything that smelled so delicious. Her steps slowed as she approached a quaint wooden cottage. It was pinned in by a garden on one side, and a vast field facing the rear, and the one other side. This is it, she said softly, and inhaled deeply, already smelling dinner. Hurry, it wouldn't look good if we were late. She glanced at the distant treetops on the horizon. The sun could be seen just barely through their boughs. My timing is impeccable, she smiled wryly. She stepped up to the door and pushed her way in. She was greeted by a wall of gorgeous smells coming straight from the stove where, there, where her mother was adding the final touches to supper. Her father and brother were collecting the plates and bowls and utensils for a meal in the storage area, but both returned to the main room to greet the newcomers. Mallory glowed with delight. Mallory took the initiative, remembering some instructions Lady had offered him on the walk into town earlier. Master Namara, Lady Namara, he began, trying his hardest to sound noble and professional. 
It is a true pleasure to finally meet you. He bowed, but only slightly, as he imagined a noble would. And I believe your name is Mark? Markhead, Lady Ola interrupted quickly. Her brother was always a slight touchy regarding the pronunciation of his name. Welcome, Lord Malaru, her father responded, politely bowing. Lady Ola had clearly been coaching all of us today, Malaru chuckled to himself. Please, Malaru, it is enough. Thank you. Lady Ola smiled. He was enjoying this too much. Her father pulled out the head chair at the oak table. Please, make yourself comfortable, Malaru, he said, motioning for his children to make haste in setting the table. Now tell me, how is it you know my daughter? When she described you to me earlier this day, I got the impression that you two were closer in age. He glanced harshly at his daughter for a moment. I said he was older, father, she insisted, sounding all the more vindicated by their friend's youthful adult appearance. She continued to set the table without con continued explanation, leaving the creativity to Malaru. I was traveling through this town about seven months ago, which was when we met, he said, bending the truth only when it was needed. They had, in fact, met about seven months ago. I had become separated from my caravan group, and she picked me out in a crowd and gave me a detailed description of the town and the surrounding area. It was quite a she was quite accurate, too. I would have been lost without her help. You have raised a fine daughter, Master Namara. Please, it's Alistair. She knew her father was flattered, though he would never blush. She is indeed the bright flower among us mere weeds. We hope that this year's crop will make us enough money to afford a formal education for. Lady will step forward towards the two men in conversation. He knows, father, she said with a soft giggle. She glanced into a pocket within the dress she wore and removed Mallard's velvet satchel. And he gave me this. She handed it to her father, who seemed to immediately know what it was without examining it. What's this? She asked her, sounding furious. How dare you take this man's money? But father, I... Did I raise a knave who takes what she does not earn? Mallard looked back and forth between the two, not quite sure how to defuse the situation, but Alistair had his hands on his belt, and Ladiel had a look of pure terror on her face, gasping for words. Even her mother had turned her attention on the group. He mustered the courage to dig deep and speak from the heart in her defense. Sir, I am a man of my word. When last we had spoken, I was unable to repay her for her assistance, and I told her that I would repay her tenfold when next we met. I gave that money to her today with belated thanks, and told her to spend it how she wished. There is no harm done, and if you feel it is undeserved, then consider a due payment for this evening meal. Lady was genuinely startled. She was seconds away from a lashing a moment ago. Where did Mallory develop such masterful powers of persuasion? Was there enchantment woven into his words? Even still, Alistair continued, though at first his voice seemed to waver slightly, a man of your standing would find our family meal bland. He turned to his wife, who looked noticeably slighted. Malarod opened his mouth to protest, but remained silent. Let's not speak further on this matter. You're an honored guest, and supper is waiting. The group each took their seats, and with Malarod and Alistair on each end, and Lady Alt Markin and their mother seated lengthwise, the meal that lay before them smelled of heaven and steamed into the waiting faces of all present. Malarod was barely able to think before his hunger took control. Lady Alt had often complained about her father's harshness, and until today he had dismissed it as simple childish wine. The man clearly had a temper, but it was just as evident how much Alistair loved his daughter. He envied their relationship. Alistair rubbed his hands together in anticipation. My, Evelyn, you have outdone yourself tonight. He grasped her hand in his and turned to Mallard. Would you honor us by leading the evening meal prayer, he asked. Mallard winced. He knew eventually this would happen, 
a situation where her family's customs were radically different from anything he was used to. Still, he remembered Lady O'll mention the ceremony once or twice and hoped he could improvise to some level of adequacy. Well, he began, I must confess that I do not regularly uphold this tradition, but I shall do my best. He caught a stressful glance from Lady O'll before he clasped his hands in front of him and closed his eyes. Great Lord! He remembered that part from his scant dealings with humans in the time of the Great Cleansing. Today, throughout the kingdom, the harvest is being celebrated, and people are coming together despite all difference of the mind and body. Thank you for this meal and the company in which it is received. Thank you for a wonderful family and friends. Thank you for our fond memories, and thank you for our children, for they are our legacies. Malaru, Ladyo whispered softly. She believed his words were sincere, but she knew they meant something different to him. She hoped her father hadn't picked up on some of the nuances she had. Safety and belief, her father finished quickly. Everyone opened their eyes and began serving the children first, then the adults. That was a very heartfelt prayer, especially for one who, as you put it, does not regularly uphold the tradition. He regarded Mallory carefully as he served several slices of meatloaf onto his plate. Mallory smiled, but to Ladyle it seemed cold and insincere. It had been some time indeed, and I have a lot to be thankful for. He accepted the loaded plate graciously and began eating. His use of the fork and knife was sloppy at best, Ladyle noted, trying not to smile, but he seemed to be managing well enough. She was genuinely confused by his decision to come for dinner. Until now, she had been caught up in the fascination of bringing him to meet his family under the cloak of their ruse. Now she felt that she had made a crucial mistake, that she had betrayed the reality of her situation and his. She could tell from the words his eyes whispered to her that he felt uncomfortable, too close to her family, to humans, to the kingdom. She hoped that they'd be able to forget their worries during this evening ceremonies. Regardless of anyone's feelings or concerns, evening meal finished far too soon, with everyone's stomachs ready to burst through the seams of their clothes. Ladyl changed into her lavender gown behind a drawn curtain, while Malaro fabricated a story about trade dealings in the north. For a soul so long cloistered in the dark of a dusty cavern, he seemed very knowledgeable in the habits of the kingdom's nobles. He even made specific references to the king, and even Lord Cantor. Once more, her father begged Malaru to rescind the gift of gold coins, but he made no definite progress. They marched together in a tight group against the cold southern wind. The dark sky was cloudless, and the autumn air was particularly cold. They each sported thick fur coats, except for Malaru, who insisted he enjoyed the fresh air. Lady laughed at his stubbornness. Back in his cave, he would balk at even the slightest draft, but to play his role, he subjected himself to the bitterest of nights. She would probably be tending to his cold and listening to him whine come next week, she sighed. The festivities could be easily heard before they were seen, for nearly every villager for miles was in attendance. There was a torch every few paces or so lining the town square. The haystacks were organized against one wall of the church, where many members of the choir were already singing a few hymns and carols to provide some ambience to the locale. A large area of the main cobblestone street was cleared of any clutter, and several dozen men and women were dancing to the music being played by a fiddler and his companion Piper. There were snacks as well as ale, still unfortunately off-limits to children younger than Ladyo's brother. She also noticed her pastor and several of the priests fiddling with a strange wooden crate on the ground, away from most of the commotion. Dancing, Mallory explained softly as they approached. How wonderful, and that music. Alistair nudged Mallory forward, smiling. Tonight is, the, tonight is the night. Dance away. He headed over to the far end of the churchyard 
to a group of other rugged farmers standing nearby to a group of hobble horses. One of the farmers immediately handed him a tall mug of beer and he accepted it smiling, easily joining into the middle of their conversation. Marquand slowly shuffled his way over to a group of young women, all of which appeared delighted to share his company. Evelyn turned to face Mallory in a curtsy, looking slightly red in the cheeks. May I have a dance, sir? she asked with a youthful giggle. My husband has two left feet and lost the will to dance years ago, and I'm interested in seeing what new moves a northerner like yourself can teach me. Unable and unwilling to resist, he let Evelyn lead him onto the dance floor, where immediately they began to rock and sway, while neither looked especially skilled in the dance they were performing. Left to herself, Lady will spend a minute observing her mother dancing with Mallory. Individually, their dancing proficiency was questionable, but seeing as the other dancers present were mostly intoxicated, the two looked almost graceful. Her feet, with a mind of their own, brought her absentmindedly to Abbot Copo. She was greeted warmly by him, though many of the other priests, her teachers, swiftly moved away. Lady Olnemere, Copo said warmly, his beard bouncing up and down as he spoke. How are you faring? I haven't seen you in class recently. She instinctively glanced toward her mother and was relieved to find that she had danced to the far side of the clearing and could not have overheard his comment. Don't worry about your parents, he continued, obviously aware of her concern. Your mind is already full of life's learning. There's no harm in missing a few classes here and there. She breathed a sigh of relief. But it would be a shame not to share your gift with others. She nodded, sometimes angry at the added responsibility of knowledge and being what her tutors called a prodigy. The fiddler's song finished with a grand crescendo, and many people on the dance floor erupted in cheers and applause. Evelyn and Malarut made their way over to Lady Olcopo just as the music began once more. You two look like naturals, Lady O said with a laugh as they approached. Indeed, your friend has quite a knack. It was hard work just keeping up with what's that style called? Malarut blushed slightly. Be honest, it has no name, and the style if you could call it that, is all my own. The group shared a heartfelt laugh. Lady O returned her attention to Copo and the group of priests that had moved towards the mysterious wooden box. What is all that? she asked him, pointing. He smiled. It's a package from the distant north. They are called firecrackers. We're about to set them off, so let's all step back a paces, shall we? Firecrackers. She had read about them in some of the books within the library. It seemed a reasonable speculation given the kingdom's past history against Malru's people, that the power of fire could someday be harnessed by humans in such a remarkable manner. Father, Markent, she tried, waving to get their attention, but they were deep in conversation and didn't spot her arms flailing. No matter, she thought, they'll be the ones who'll miss out on the spectacle. My friends, Abbot Coppel called out loudly from atop the choir's haystacks. The fielder's song concluded, and the dancers all slowed their spinning choreography and turned their attention to the roadman above them. Even Alistair and the other farmers, still off to one side, into their chatter and stood quietly. Only when he was sure he had all ears did he continue. Tonight is the harvest, and at that, one of the best in years, thanks to your perseverance and hard work. Lord Cantor was so pleased this year that he has given us this special bonus for our celebrations. He spread his hands out towards the box of firecrackers off to his left. Exotic firecrackers from the far north, from his own personal supply. Some of the people in attendance gave a short round of applause at the mention of the kind act of generosity. Tonight we will light up the sky with our perseverance and hard work. At this time, anyone who was not clapping had begun to do so, with cheerful faces everywhere. 
light them, he called out to a couple of other priests, both holding a lighted stick, and they nodded, proceeding over to the wooden box. Culpa called out a slow but steady countdown, many in attendance joining in. Four, three, two, one. The small cylindrical devices inside the crate sizzled and sparked before launching upwards into the air. The night turned to day as they shot up high into the night sky, screeching like wild dogs and leaving a faint trail of golden light as they gained height. There was a brief moment of darkness and silence before the firecrackers erupted into giant explosions of colorful lights. Some red, some green, sparkling like little flowers before spiraling downward and eventually fading into nothingness. The initial burst had startled the horses. By the grand finale of showering colors, they had reared their startling eyes and freed themselves from the hobble they were secured to, winning with fright. They didn't seem to consider the party goers around them, just that they had to escape the mighty thunderclaps they were hearing. One of the powerful stallions was more securely tied to the post than the others, but with a great heave of his powerful muscles, pulled the post from the ground and sent it hurtling through the air, guided only by the whipping motion of the rope between it and the horse. The congregated men nearest the animals were given no time to react before the panic spread from the horses to the people. The post flying through the air struck Alistair as he dove for cover, clubbing him at great speed at the back of his neck. He dropped to the ground instantly with a sickening crack that was all but overpowered by the firecrackers and the yells of the other men. He hit the cobbled road hard, and several of his teeth shattered on the stones, leaving a spattering of blood. Father! Markham was the first one to notice the collapsed farm on the road, as others tried in vain to secure the escaping horses galloping down the street. He raced over to him and slid onto the ground beside him and tried to gently shake him awake, but his father didn't move. Lady O watched from near to the haystacks as her brother tried in vain to bring their father back from unconsciousness and fought the losing battle to stay her tears. He was dead, wasn't he? Why? Mallard had observed the situation as if it was happening at half the speed, watching helplessly as the hobbling post was torn up and and out of the ground, and was slammed into the back of Alistair's skull. As his body reached the ground, Mallory knew he was dead. He had never felt such loss for a human before, and was drawn to him inexorably, knowing there was only one thing he could do, though it would mean his own end. Mallory, Lady O whispered with sadness as he walked fully past her. She grabbed his hand and held it tightly in hers, wanting to once again take solace in his steadfastness, but he didn't slow and slowly her hand fell away as he walked completely past. She watched him pass between the crowds that had gathered, following in a trance several paces behind. Reaching the body of Alistair, Mallory slowly knelt down over him, placing both hands over his chest and closing his eyes slightly. A single tear trickled slowly down his human cheek, and suddenly her mind snapped back into reality, seeing the scene as a horrific nightmare. Her knees began to ache at the knowledge of what would follow. Mallory, no! There was a strange hum that filled the air, the same one from before, back in the cavern, but followed with a new sensation, that of a blinding light. It was. It began as a tiny ball glowing underneath Mallory's shaking palms, but quickly grew to encompass her father's entire body, and shortly after the entire town square. Lady Hill stumbled in their brightness, falling to the ground in a bizarre combination of sorrow, horror, and awe, and soon even shutting her eyes would not prevent the light from pervading her senses. After an agonizing minute, the brightness faded, and through her tear-filled eyes, Lady could just barely make out the image of Mallory. Was it Mallory? He looked much older. In fact, he looked more like Father. The crowd was eerily silent as Alistair slowly stepped forward, looking exhausted, while he had just worked a day in the fields. 
Malaru crumpled and collapsed, lay on the ground to his side. What happened? he asked in a barely audible whisper. He surveyed the expression of the group and examined himself thoroughly. Am I dead? Quite the opposite came the aged voice of Abbot Culpo as he stepped through the crowd with a small entourage of priests. You are the victim of foul magic, my good friend, he said, pointing to Malarud's quiet form, but it appears to have spared you, which is more than I can say for what we shall have to do to this vile creature. The, the other priests moved to the body and utilized several lengths of rope to bind Malarud securely. Wait, Malarud just saved my father, Ladio protested to a deaf crowd, fighting against arms that tried to push her back. Please let him go. Let him go. Culpa turned to face the girl, his eyes filled with determination and resolve. His expression was similar to that which usually adorned the face of her friend in peril, but she sensed something extra in the abbot's visage. Hatred. Little Lady Onamara, the instigator in all of this. What? His eyes flashed angrily for a startling instant. You knew, didn't you? You knew this man was a demon. Yet still you led him into our town, sat him with your family, brought him to our celebration. How dare you? She felt some of the crowd members close in on her. Immediately her heart began to race. He's no demon. He's more human than any of you. She was unable to control her fear any longer. Tears began to stream down her face in rivulets. He's my friend. Please don't hurt him. Her voice had diminished to a pitiful whisper, and she feared her words were lost in the murmur of the crowd. We have a moral obligation to do more than simply hurt him, Coppo replied in a monotone. He is an infiltrator. He is a pretender, and he must be made example of. We thought the demons had been annihilated by the Red Knights of old, we have been proven incorrect. We missed one, and may therefore have missed many. This is our deterrent. Execution. No, Lady O screamed in a crying heat. She collapsed to her knees in a wave of grief that stabbed at her heart. It felt like guilt. She had invited him to the harvest. She was to blame for all this, for her father, for Malaro. The thought made her feel sick. Culpa was quick with an unwavering response. Yes, he must be dealt with in a manner most proper for a hellish ghoul such as he is. He swallowed hard as his tone changed, belying a measure of sympathy. And alas, you must be dealt with in a manner most proper for a traitorous accomplice such that you are. That is my responsibility to this kingdom. She sobbed, looking through the crowd for her father and mother, but their expressions were anything but sympathetic. No! The voice was not hers, however, and many members of the crowd, now more of a mob, gasped and pointed at the source of the demand, a muddy Malarut rising to his feet awkwardly. She is innocent. Take me, he managed to choke out before once again collapsing to the ground, tangled in the rose binding his limbs. Please! Malarut subdued, the mob quickly turned its collective attention towards Ladio. The throng of people was so menacing, their looks so horrible, that she curled herself into a ball and shut her eyes as tightly as she could, hoping for a quick release. Lady awoke to the sound of a hundred people jeering and was distraught at the sight her eyes eventually afforded her when they regained their abilities in the bright daylight. She was standing in a giant courtyard, a regal castle set at attention just behind a stone wall in the distance, an angry crowd of people standing at her feet, many spitting in her direction. She was tied to a tall wooden pole, her hands tightly bound behind her. Her neck was bound to the pole as well, and she had trouble panning through her surroundings but it seemed apparent that she was on a wooden stage. She couldn't remember anything specific about her immediate past. There were strange memories, ephemeral concepts, but nothing tangible, nothing that made any sense to her at first. She could recall screaming, though no sound came out. She could recall a blinding darkness, 
that brought tears to her eyes like the intensity of a blazing forge. She could remember Mallory's dire screams echoing through a labyrinth of stone walls, could remember crying in pity for him. Sadly, she also remembered crying in shame as well, crying because she had been forced to admit his true identity, that he was a demon. She had been forced to call him that. She had never done so before, considered it a betrayal to have done so, whether he had heard it or not. He had threatened her with torture, even peeled skin off her body with a sharp blade in an attempt to uncover if she knew the whereabouts of other demons. But she gave no answers through her screams. She had no answers to give. Her eyes welled up with tears once more. This only encouraged the crowd further. Some began to throw rotten vegetables at her, and each one that hit its mark left a painful bruise almost instantly. Her mind had been broken, she sobbed silently, and her body. Her legs and chest bore the gruesome scars of the skinny blades, her torn and bloody lavender gown failing to cover the former. They had forced her head under water until she thought her lungs would explode. Her behind was bruised, the inside of her thighs raw. The guards had no qualms about her poor treatment. She was slated to be executed. It didn't help that they ceased to consider her a person. Lydia couldn't remember how long they kept her locked away. Was it a week, a month? The assaults were so frequent and occurred so often that she built up an immunity to the pain. She already felt dead inside anyways. The jeers of the crowd turned to exuberance. Lydia struggled to turn her head to face Abbot Copel, dressed in a formal clergy gown, followed closely by Lord Cantor himself, fitted in a fine golden chain mail suit. Behind the Lord was a lithe feminine figure dressed all in black, the telltale hood of an executioner resting on her shoulders, her muscles rippling slightly beneath her dark leather tunic. Behind her still, two heavily armed guards in thick metal armor forcefully escorted Mallow, or at least she thought it was him. His eyes were faded and small. His human frame looked emaciated rather than thin and nimble, and he had the makings of a scraggly beard underneath several noticeable cuts and bruises, including an obviously broken nose. He limped up the stairs onto the wooden podium, and the rear guard kicked him in the back of the knee, sending him straight to the floor. The impact was hard. His bound hands could not soften the fall. They pulled him up by the hair first, and to Lady shock, he didn't cry out, but the hair quickly tore out, and the guards were left to pull him to his feet by more humane means. Good people, Abbot Cobble called out to the rowdy crowd of people standing in the field before the erected gallows platform. Her mind finally recognized for what it was. She was going to die on this stage. Good people, this man, this broken creature, has revealed himself to be a demon, survivor from the bygone time of the great cleansing. The crowd summarily booed at the mention of this ancient enemy, tattered and silent on the stage before them. Copel moved to the edge of the platform. The armed guards assisted the executioner to restrain Mallory to a wooden board that was designed to adjust its angle, change it from a horizontal table-like surface to a vertically orientated rack. Lord Cantle took his seat off to one side, accompanied by a troop of other nobles and ladies, all stern-faced and silent. It has been two months since the harvest, two months since this beast showed his true powers. Lady had wondered why it seemed so cold, but has she really been in prison for two months? To those who question, let it be known that I saw his foul magic at work with my very own eyes. He brought a dead man back to life. The crowd had a mixed reaction, unsure as how to take the news. The couple continued, Compassion, that is the word we as humans use to describe such an act. But demons feel no emotions, so we can only guess at his sinister motives. He strode the length of the stage and slapped Mallory across the face with his backhand. Answer me. 
Why did you feign such a sentiment, creature? The crowd hushed to a dead silence in anticipation of the creature's response. Malroy took a pained breath before speaking in a voice that expressed the very meaning of pain. I did not want the man to die if I could prevent it. The abbot laughed, and the crowd laughed in suit like puppets. But your kind killed thousands during the cleansing. Why was this simple farmer to be spared? Malero was silent, unwilling to answer. He craned his neck to take a last look at Ladio, the human girl he had come to love. He had done it for her, and the act needed no justification. He looked away, squared his jaw, and glared at Copo. He followed Malero's glance to the girl secured to the post. Ah, yes, your accomplice, one Ladio Nemera, proof of how a demon such as you can corrupt even the most pure of spirits. Copel's voice wavered, sounding almost regretful. A near child, ten years old, full of life and brilliance, damned by this vile creature here. Copel paused and pointed a finger at Malarut. To think that a demon could wear so convincing a mask. Pity this child, for even the best of us could have made such a mistake. A demon which could take such a shape is a danger indeed. Many people in the crowd nodded in agreement. Wait, Copel explained. Interrogation of this vile creature has revealed a hideous demon secret they call the Great Hide. The demons of old had spawned progeny of their own and hid them, disguised them, as our own offspring. The crowd was now a raucous, and people were flailing their arms in angry or frightful protests. Could this innocent face of a child be hiding a demon spawn? The crowd turns its attention to Ladio, spitting curses at her. It is after intense investigation that I have come to conclude that Lady Olimera may be one such child demon, that, uh, that of this survivor. He raised his finger angrily at Mallory, and the, cried, and the crowd cried in anger. No, Mallory insisted with a hoarse whisper. She is not at fault. Copa raised his hands in exasperation. But isn't that the defense of every parent? That their child is always innocent? And should I suppose also... Given your other displays of human emotion, they would you offer yourself for punishment in a place? Of course, Mallard said, though there was little hope in his voice. No, Lady finally spoke up, almost screaming with madness. You are the demons. He has done nothing, nothing but treat me with kindness and respect. I, her voice trailed off, her energy completely consumed, wishing once again for a swift end. Poor girl, she's been deceived. What is the credo of the Red Knights that saved us from destruction so long ago? He paused a moment to let his puppets search their memories. Demons be slain, lest men be tamed, safety and belief. We can ill afford to spare the life of one demon, else we may once more stand on the brink of annihilation. Our belief stems from proof, and proof of a demon is its vile ruby heart of sin. Executioner! The crowd fell dead silent as the black-clad woman stepped to the center of the platform. Albert Copel retreated to the rear of the stage, where two servants began to lay out tools on a table as the executioner observed the crowd for a moment through her headpieces and isolates. She walked slowly over to Malarote, currently restrained in a mostly upright position. As a prisoner delivered a death sentence, I am obligated to grant one final request, should you desire, she said calmly, as if she had repeated those words a thousand times before. Yes, he wheezed, turning to face Lydia with a loving glance that made her want to crawl up and die from shame. He was the reason her life was going to end today. I don't want her to have to watch me die. The executioner stood upright to face Lord Cantor. She pulled a strip of cloth from a pocket and pointed towards Lady Ol. Cantor nodded in approval as she proceeded to walk across the stage and tied the strip over Lady O's eyes. I don't want you to make it painful for him, 
Leto whispered to her as she finished the tight knot behind her head. I could not bear to hear it. The executioner paused for a moment to consider the girl's words. I am here to conduct my required affair, and that is all. Leto could hear her walking back to the other end of the platform. What did that answer mean? Wild creature, the voice was that of Culpo. Nameless demon, you are hereby condemned to death. It is my duty to confirm your death has been completed, and it is my duty to secure and dispose of your blackened heart through cleansing fire. Executioner, proceed. Though she did not want to listen, Ladiel strained her ears. There was the sound of a steel instrument being picked up from the table at the rear. The sound of gears turning came next, likely Malarus' restraint device being lowered to a horizontal plane. A moment later, the screams, shrill and labored, yet hauntingly familiar. She knew she had heard them before, from the dungeon, but yet part of her mind refused to recognize them. They continued for some time. It seemed like days to Ladiel, but eventually the screams gave way to a gagging noise, then, thankfully, silence. Silence. It was over. Ladiel prayed for a quicker death and felt her guilt compounded tenfold. She deserved no quicker death. Footsteps. Culpo's voice rang out over the silent courtyard once more. This is the vile ruby heart that marks a demon for what it is, despite its disguise. The crowd murmured quietly. Demons be slain, lest men be tamed. Safety and belief. Many members of the crowd instinct instinctively repeated the last phrase. Footsteps inched closer to her, and Ladiel's heart leapt out of her chest. Malarud had told her the story of the Great Hive for a reason. He always had a reason. Could she be a descendant of his people from a hundred years ago? Was that how she found him that day so many months ago? Was that why they became such close friends? The chances were negligible, she reassured herself, though her imagination in its death throes couldn't help but speculate. In these last moments, it was all she had left. Lady Onamara, couple spoke again, as she detected a brief moment where his words choked him. Child demon, sympathizer, it makes no difference. Both must be judged equally under our ultimate law. He stepped back, and a second footstep moved in closer. As a prisoner delivered a death sentence, the executioner called out, I am obligated to grant one final request, should you desire. Lado had had an eternity to consider her request. She had seen her life flash before her eyes, had seen Malarod's life flash before her eyes, and the conjured lives of myriad others who had died before them in an identical manner. She wondered if her family had traveled here to see her executed. She wondered how her father was doing. I want to see you without your mask when you kill me. There was a long pause, then the executioner repeated the request aloud to Cantor, who was seated at the other end of the podium. He must have nodded, for soon Ladiel's eyes once again drew in the light of the courtyard. Her hands were released from the pole by one of the guards from the rear, and the executioner guided Ladiel across the platform to the bloody rack, where Malarud's body had already been cleared and taken away. She noticed a small fire pit behind the rack that she had not been able to see from her previous spot. Was Malarud's heart burning in there? Ladio was calm as the executioner switched from one form of captivity with another. Ladio's hands were locked into notches in the sides of the level board, and her feet, too far a distance from the bottom edge of the board, were tied with a rope to it. Copal returned to her side as soon as she was securely fastened to the uncomfortable device. Demons be slain, lest men be tamed, he said clearly into the air. Executioner. The executioner stepped to Ladiel's other side and removed her black mask, re revealing long dark hair and a beautiful golden complexion. For her executioner, Ladiel thought, she was an angel. She was deceivingly quick with her blade, 
and Ladiel's gown had been shredded to the floor. Her chest tore open, revealing a rush of blood dripping across her skin and onto the table, spilling further onto the floor of the podium. It was the worst physical pain she had ever experienced in her life. The loss of blood made her delirious, but she was certain she hadn't even cried out once through the or throughout the ordeal. As the executioner angel completed her gruesome affair, Culpa appeared beside her, examined her handiwork. Both their expressions were static, stalwart, and resolute, the executioner from experience, and Abbot Culpa's out of necessity. Those two faces, those two ghoulish visages devoid of emotion, were Ladiel's last sight as she kept her eyes open to the very end. And even as her last breath left her, her eyes stared lifelessly towards the two faces staring back. Now, my next one is also a scary story. It's called The Night Shift. I Don't Get Paid Enough for This by Beth, published in A Kraken Lore. At first glance, I didn't think the boy could be any older than 16. But his age wasn't what caught my attention as he walked into the gas station that night. It was a blood on his hands. Got a bathroom in here, man? he asked. He stuffed his hands into the pockets of his oversized hoodie, smearing crimson across the gray fabric. With his hood pulled over his head, the only clear point of focus was the red on his hands. It wasn't the first time someone had come in like that. Losers of late-night fights often stumbled in, searching for a place to clean up. Paying customers only, I replied, jerking a thumb to the sign on the wall behind me. Corporate policy, you know? The kid nodded and turned away. His shoulders hunched over his lanky body as he wandered up and down the aisles. His hands stayed in his pockets, but he looked to be clutching something underneath the loose hoodie. The rounded silhouette of something unseen stood starkly against the rest of his thin frame. Judging from how slowly he moved through the store, it must have been heavy. It was impossible to focus on anything but him as his shuffling steps filled the quiet night. Just buy something and leave, I thought. Working the night shift had given me a front row seat to some of the weird, creepy, and downright terrifying sides of life. Thieves, addicts, and more than one fully naked man had come waltzing in during the witching hour just to keep me from falling asleep on the job. But the clock hadn't even struck midnight when the kid wrapped his long, claw-like fingers around a bag of chips. The crinkle of the bag might as well have been thunder from the way it crumpled through the empty store. He tossed the bag onto the counter. A scarlet thumbprint was impossible to miss against the bright blue packaging. I glanced up at the kid, an act I immediately regretted. There was a face beneath the shadow of his hood, but it couldn't have been his. The skin was pale and paper thin, so transparent that the tiny blue veins beneath carved snaking trails across his forehead. His eyes were glazed over and sunken deep into the sockets. At any moment, I feared they'd fall back into his skull with two quick wet plops. It looked as if someone had stolen the face from a 90-year-old man and stretched it over the skeletal structure of the teenager. The hairs on the back of my neck shot up in response to some deep, instinctual fear. I had been held at gunpoint during my first week on the night shift. It was only for a few seconds before the would-be robber lost his nerve and ran off, but in those brief moments, I had been terrified of dying. Something about the way the kid looked back at me made dying seem like the least of my worries. Some survival-driven part of my brain kicked into gear, knocking off the dust from sitting unused for generations. Back in the day, it served the critical purpose of identifying threats before the mind had time to even process the information coming in. A split-second gut feeling that determined what was, what, what was and wasn't a danger. What was and wasn't human. Not human, the instinct decided in a flash. I swallowed hard, fighting every urge to run, to tear out into the night. 
to take my chances with the thieves and addicts and whatever else was out there. Anything, anything but this. You good, man? The kid asked. Centuries long silence passed between us. I grabbed the bag of chips, careful to avoid the crimson thumbprint on the front. Yeah, yeah, I said as I scanned the barcode. It's been a long night. That'll be two eighty-seven. The kid pulled out his wallet and fished out three dollars. Did he not notice the blood staining his fingers? Or did he simply not care? Either way, my instinct continued to scream against the inside of my skull. Not human, not human. Leave, run, out, go, now. Keep the change, the kid said as he stepped the money on the counter. Tracked his hand as he traded the cash for the chips. Watching his blood-stained digits seemed safer than looking up at his eyes. Though there were no truly safe options. Not until the kid, or whatever it was about him that made me want to scream, was long gone. So, can I use the bathroom now or what? I forced my focus away from his hands and grabbed the bathroom key from the behind the counter. Yeah, sure, I'll show you where it's at. I was quick to get out of his way as soon as the bathroom door was unlocked. He shuffled past me, still clutching onto whatever was hidden beneath his hoodie. For a split second, I pictured my girlfriend, seven months pregnant, holding her hands beneath her swollen stomach as she waddled to the bathroom for the third time in an hour. She was the reason I'd taken on the night shift, a slightly bigger paycheck to help cover the cost of our kid. But this kid, with his bloody hands and stolen face, made me wish I never had. A warm wave of relief washed over me as the bathroom door closed, offering a temporary barrier between us. I stared out across the empty store. What I wouldn't have given for someone to come strutting in stark naked. That I could have handled. Violent retching came from behind me. Not retching, erupting. As if the kid's body was coming up in chunks his whole self turning inside out on the floor of a gas station bathroom. Every ounce of warmth seemed to drain from my body in an instant as I glanced back. My mind came up with a thousand scenarios for what was going on behind that door. Every possible answer set my survival instincts into high gear. Not human. The horrid sounds stopped as suddenly as they'd begun. The silence that fell over the store was far too heavy. I steadied myself on a nearby cooler. If I drained every beer in that thing... It still wouldn't have been enough liquid courage to dare face what was behind that door. The sound of water cut through the quiet for just a moment. The kid wiped his wet but no longer bloody hands against his hoodie as he came out of the bathroom. No paper towels, he explained simply as the door swung behind him. I nodded, my eyes fixed on his form as he shuffled his way out of the store. I didn't dare to look away until he rounded the corner and vanished back into the night. Softer sounds rose from the bathroom. Vicious, squelching sounds. Something sliding across the tile floor. Gasping sounds. Something with lungs fighting to breathe, as if it were drowning on dry land. Living sounds. It took everything in me not to let out a scream right then and there. I locked the bathroom door, ran out of the gas station, and never came back. And now my last one. Sanctuary. A Scary Secret is Revealed. Chapter 9. What? 90% death rate? by Robert J. Longpre, and this was published again in Life Through a Lens. A faint shimmering appeared. Carrie didn't exactly see anything other than the faintest of blurring near the wall opposite the bank of windows. Dorian waved to Carrie, signaling to him to follow and stand in the shimmering oval. Once inside, once inside, Carrie felt a faint pull of gravity as somehow his body was carried upwards. Almost as soon as the sensation had begun, it came to an end. Carrie didn't need to be told to follow his father. Intuitively, he knew that he was on the upper level. 
We can talk here, Carrie, his father began. A quick look around the open space showed Carrie that this place was almost foreign. The technology was beyond anything he had ever seen or heard, with the exception of science fiction descriptions of spaceship command centers. No one can hear us from below. Even the sounds of our footsteps are canceled out for anyone who might be listening below us. Wow, this what I think it is? What do you think it is, Carrie Weiss? A spaceship command center. It is precisely that. That doesn't make sense, Dad. If this is the command center, then the rest of the cabin would have to be the spaceship. And it is. Beneath all the wooden appearances, the original spaceship still exists. But what about the one at the bottom of the lake? It's a scouting ship, a much smaller version of this one. Why, Dad? Why are they even here? Dorian led Carrie to a pair of comfortable seats. Once there, he gave Carrie a bottle of what looked like lime juice. Here, drink this. Why? Well, that's a long story, a very long story. Still, I will shorten it to a few of the basic points and hope the explanation will be enough for now. Our home planet doesn't exist anymore. Before it was destroyed, a number of spacecraft such as this one were able to escape. Half of the ships made this planet their destination. The other half was sent to a different planet in a different star system. Destroyed? How? Carrie interrupted. That's a different story for a different time. All the crews of the ships were made up of men, only men. It wasn't that women weren't able to be crew members. There just, there just weren't any women left on our home world. They all perished in the ongoing assaults against our home planet. Think of it as a gender-specific pathogen which killed women without affecting men. Without women, our species was doomed to become extinct. That's horrible. That's genocide. Yes, it was a war against women from which we had no solution. So, you came here for the women? I know it sounds crass, but yes, if I hadn't come, you wouldn't have been born, and our race would have become extinct. I think I can understand, Carrie admitted. So what's next? You said you were going to let Mom know. Why would you? Why not just keep on pretending you're an ordinary human? I mean, you got a home and a family here. Why risk losing it all? That's why I came to get you tonight, to answer that question, the most important question of the present time, Dorian answered. We will need to leave this planet very soon. We only have a short time before we have a window to travel to another star system, the one that the other group traveled to while we came here. We won't have the same opportunity for at least another three years if we don't take this opportunity. So why not wait until then? The virus that is causing so much havoc is deadlier to humans than we thought. More than 90% of the human population will die within the next 18 months. Those who survive will likely find themselves at war with each other. This planet will not be a good place to live on while waiting for the next travel window. Carrie sat stunned. Ninety percent of the human population was going to die. Nine out of ten people. Were his mother and sister or even Anne going to be among those who don't survive? All of a sudden, he knew why his father was in a rush to prepare for leaving the planet. Can we take Mom, Jesse, and Anne? Of course. They are vital to the survival of our species, remember? We'll take as many women as we can. That is why we have the older women and their children here. The same thing is happening in other locations on the planet. There are 114 other outposts with the same objective. It isn't much. They will be enough for us to create a new world, a blend of new species. At least that is our hope. So, when do we tell Mom and Anne? Soon, son. Soon. And that's all I have for you here for this week. Uh, appreciate you listening. And with all of that, I wish you slantia, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Gara Mahagan. Thank you for listening to the show today. 
I hope you enjoyed the variety of stories and poems again this week. Maybe one of them might touch your heart a little. Disclosure for everyone, in order to read the complete stories and poems, you will need to sign up for subscription in Medium. If I see a link by the author on one of the stories to allow everyone to read it, I will let you know in the newsletters. Please return again next week for another episode of Cron de Bia Stories and Poetry. As a show decay, I want to continue to delight you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Long life and fair health to you. Salfada a ghost Goodbye for now.